All right. Welcome, everybody. This is our eighth episode of our live streams. Uh, we have these every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This week, we are speaking with Godfrey. He is actually running for California State Assembly in the 53rd District. Uh, so we're going to be talking about his race, what made him run. We're also going to be talking about, um, you know, the work he's been doing with Our Revolution Los Angeles. And of course, we can't ignore what's been going on with all the protests. Um, I, I was actually at a protest yesterday, so was he. We were at different protests. Uh, and so we're gonna be uh, chatting a little bit about that. So uh, we're going to be also putting uh, in the description, uh, the links as always for my social media, his social media, if you wanna follow him. Uh, he's a great progressive candidate. I really encourage you guys to go out there and think about these uh, more local races because they're so, so, so important. Uh, so Godfrey, thank you so much for being here and joining us. Uh, so uh, just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of share with everybody a little bit about you, your race and who you are. Sure. Um, uh, hi everyone. I hope uh, this finds you um, as safe as possible, whatever that means for you today. Um, uh, my name is Godfrey Santos Plata. My pronouns are he, him, his. Um, I am broadcasting to you live from Koreatown uh, here in Los Angeles. Um, I'm running for the California State Assembly in District 53. So for folks who aren't as familiar with all the different numbers, there's 80 different assembly districts. 53 is Koreatown through downtown Los Angeles, Boyle, uh, and then uh, Boyle Heights south to Huntington Park and Vernon. So it's half a million people that I'm running to represent, but predominantly renter, predominantly immigrant, um, and that's who I am. Um, I'm a renter here in Koreatown, and right now in our assembly, there's 80 folks up there making law for the entire state, and only one is a renter, and he's likely to leave uh, in, in November, which means that we will be without renter representation at a time uh, where tenants' rights and housing for all is the number one issue for the entire state. We cannot talk about what safety means here without talking about housing as safety for folks. Um, I love that you said that, by the way. I just have to say, I love that you said that, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, it's also true. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, I'm an immigrant from the Philippines um, and uh, I moved here uh, in 1988 at the age of four years. And so I went to school in LA Unified and Long Beach Unified School District, so homegrown here. Um, and my very first elementary school um, was a school that served predominantly African-American folks. Um, and I had mostly um, uh, an administration that was African-American, parent volunteers were African-American, et cetera. That was my entry into the United States. So I, was, I had a really rich, fert a fertile um, education around the civil rights movement, um, around um, pride, around being African-American. Um, right even before the Los Angeles um, uprising in 1992. So this moment in time is actually really um, important to me, um, again, um, because it is decades from 1992, and here we are again, um, still trying to make a point about the police state and police violence um, that is um, uh, upon uh, African-American and Black communities in particular, but a police state in general that envelops all of us. Um, and I am living in Koreatown now, and Koreatown was such a heart of um, a lot of that, um, a lot of the 1992 uprising. So that's a little about me, how I'm coming into this call. Um, I'm happy to share more about my campaign, other things we care about, but that gives you a little bit of insight. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, and, and guys, 
please, if you haven't already, subscribe, share this channel with other people. The reason that I'm saying that is because we need to have more platforms for progressive candidates. And I'm not saying that I'm the be all end all, but we need to give a voice to these smaller channels that are having these important, you know, conversations. And we talk about all kinds of things here. We've actually got uh, Maria Estrada also is gonna be coming on. Fatima is gonna be coming on because we need to give a platform to these local candidates. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing that Godfrey. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about was, how we got here as far as the protests. So yesterday I was at a protest, uh, you were as well, and I'll share uh, for a second my experience and then you can share yours as well. So um, this will actually be my first time trying this. I'm gonna try to share a video with you guys. I've never actually tried uh, playing a video through a live stream. So I guess we'll find out at the end if the sound worked. Uh, but if not, I think that, you know, what we're going to see is still going to show us a lot of what uh, the problem is. So. Yesterday, I was at a protest. These are some of the images from the videos. As you can see, people were very upset. These protests uh, were in support of Black Lives Matters, and they were over the murder of George Floyd and, frankly, so many others uh, in the African-American community that have been murdered. Uh, so what we're seeing are modern-day lynchings of people, and um, people are angry. People are angry. Uh, so I'm gonna try to play this for you guys uh, and hopefully the sound will work. If not, then we'll know for next time. Uh, can you hear that, Godfrey? What choices yes, are you making? That is your responsibility. Do your jobs. We are doing ours. We're fighting for a democracy, begging you. Make the choice. Some of these were kids, they could have been my students. See the change. Why are we out here? Think about it. See the change. Now, I want you guys to keep in mind this is one end of a huge crowd of kids. You can see when you turn around. People are so upset. Because you always go for your gun first. protest yesterday and again hopefully um you know once this is done I'll, I'll double check and make sure the sound worked and everything and if so we can do a lot more of that in the future that's just a tiny taste godfrey of what the emotions that were pouring out yesterday were so uh, i just wanted to share that with you guys what was your experience yeah um thank you for sharing that it's um it's a it's a lot uh to just re-watch things um over and over again that have been that, that have been yelled out that have been uh, that have been shared for for decades now um part of part of why this is so emotional for me and for lots of other folks 
is because it feels like we are trying to say and argue the same things over and over again in the same ways and we aren't seeing actual systemic change um, around our systems of policing and systems of care um, that, uh, that are out there. So my experience, I'm here in Los Angeles, um, Black Lives Matter um, sponsored um, a big rally at Pan Pacific Park. For those of you familiar with Los Angeles, um, that is right in the middle of central Los Angeles. It's across the street from the Grove, um, which is, and the Grove and the farmer's market are, are two really big tourist destinations really, but also they have lots of fancy stores there, et cetera. Um, and uh, at 12 o'clock, we were all sort of um, beginning to gather around the, the big baseball diamond that is there at Pan Pacific Park. Um, and people, I think once we were gathering there, there were definitely at least hundreds, if not thousands of folks there. Um, lots of different signs representing support and solidarity from lots of different communities. My sign said, Philippine next for Black Lives. Um, people started out trying to social distance, right? Which is very hard as more and more people come in. And eventually, um, as, as things began to be more packed in, people re were really respectful about leaving sort of space in between us, but there is definitely no way that you could create an entire six feet bubble. But you know, like one of, one of the things that really led me to be out there knowing that things might still look like that is, um, to me, standing up against anti-Blackness is just incredibly important. Um, like I said, I, I started out at an elementary school where as a Filipino immigrant, I was surrounded by amazing Black educators, Black students who are still some of my best friends to this very day, families who I've been in touch with, who I've been to funerals for. And, and um, I understand that, I, 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 I understand from a very, I have understood from a very early age um, how exactly different educational policies, policing policies, housing policies have impacted folks of color, but especially black folks. And to me, there's no way to actually gain justice for any of our people, my people, like a Filipino people, et cetera, if we don't tackle anti-blackness first, because this country was founded on the very link between anti-blackness and capitalism. Um, and that's how we began to create this entire United States. So for me, it was important and essential to be out there um, because I knew nothing that for what I stand for was ever going to transpire and, and we're not going to be able to build a, a, the world that we deserve if Black people don't actually get the world that they deserve as well. So it felt really important to be out there. We began to spill out into the streets um, and that was part of the plan. There were some moving, there were some moving speeches in the baseball field. Some celebrities were there from Insecure, from Glee. Um, there was some singing, um, there was some drum, drumming. It was, it was very... Um, it was a very like thoughtful rally. And then as we spilled onto the streets, there were homeowners there who came out, popped their fists into the air. They came out to their cars um, and honked their horns. So they held out signs. People stopped their cars. And I think the media, you know, carried out this narrative, a look at the people trapped in their cars. No people in their cars got out of their cars and on top of their cars and supported protesters because they knew what this was about as well. And it wasn't until we got just past third and um, third and Fairfax because this is called the Fairfax district. Um, I had no idea if, if you know LA, there's quite a length of road of third of third that goes between Pan Pacific Park and the Beverly Center, this big mall. There's quite a big of a big road there, and apparently the march like actually stretched out along that entire road. But I couldn't even get past just past the Trader Joe's on third and Fairfax 
because um, at some point, um, at some point before three or around three or something like that, police started to divide up the um, the march. Like I said, I never even knew it went as far as the Beverly Center because we were divided up at, at, at that point around three o'clock. Um, and there were some organizers saying like, hey, we're just gonna try to go around <laughs> because we don't know why we're being like divided or cut off at this point. Um, uh, I think I think there are lots of hypotheses out there about like the march trying to be prevented from going into even more affluent areas, um, you know, of which Beverly Hills, West Hollywood are a part. Um, we wouldn't want to inconvenience anybody. No, right, right. <laughs> Who does because, that? <laughs> you know, black murdered lives are no inconvenience at all. Um, right, right. And um, you know, as as folks began to try to figure out how they were going to get past this division that the police had created, that's when the police um, began to really react and agitate against anyone willing to think around them. Um, and I was there for the first couple of rounds of rubber bullets um, sent into the crowd. And at first I didn't know what they were. The, 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 the thing that I saw, because I was in a parking lot right adjacent to the street trying to figure out how to get around, the thing that I saw um, was I, I heard I heard some noises and then I, I saw people running in my direction. Um, and you just kind of see that in movies all the time. Um, usually there's a giant Godzilla or dinosaur or something <laughs> involved, but they, this was like real life people running toward me. I, yell, I yelled out for my friend, Sess. I was like, Sess, <laughs> we gotta go that way. Um, and it was, it was just this moment of like trying to observe what was going on, trying to remain safe at the same time. And there were like pauses in between the rounds of rubber bullets. Um, but at some point I decided like, this is not going to be a really great place to be right now because I'm seeing this escalate. I'm seeing the provocations escalate um, and it's not going to be safe for anyone. Um, let alone me, um, an unarmed person while the police are armed. Um, and so and, I- And to be completely frank, an, un an unarmed minority. Mm -hmm. yep. Like, yep. Let's just be, let's just be honest. You That's know? right. Um, th there was a call, thank you for bringing that up. You know, like when, um, when the police began creating the barricade, there were calls for white people to the front. And something that was really interesting was to see white people actually say, no, that should be us. Like I saw, I saw folks around me saying like, Let's go, it's gotta be us. And on one hand, on, on one hand, um, I, I am, on one hand, I am not white and I don't know how to describe to be, uh, describe to white folks what it means to be part of a larger movement in which they hold the privilege. I don't know how to describe that. But I also know that being white carries privilege enough to potentially stop armed, <laughs> armed police officers from moving forward. Um, on people of color, on black folks, on immigrants, et cetera. Um, and so I, I don't know, somewhere around there, I decided to, I need to go. And by the time I got home, I lived just about 15 minutes away. I turned on the TV and there was a fire. There were like splinter, like splinters of protesters because the police had divided up folks even more. So that was yesterday for me. And um, I know people are, seeing a lot of like damaged property on the screen uh, on, on like in the media but like what people didn't see was the fighting for lives that actually happened and that's what saddens me the most like they didn't hear patrice colors the co-founder of black lives matter 
Um, they didn't hear the families of murdered black men and women and trans folks um, like do a roll call of themselves in that baseball field. Like this is not about property alone. These are about lives and real lives that were harmed and continue to be harmed because we're not strong enough as a society to figure out a different alternative. Um, so I'm, I'm in a really, um, the three words that describe where I am today are I'm mourning, I'm seething, but I'm also hyped up because um, nothing that folks have tried for centuries has worked yet um, to, to, to create a different way of addressing um, <laughs> addressing our communities as needs is or the needs of black folks. So it's about, to it's about time to try new things. And part of that include people like you and me trying to enter spaces of decision-making where we can enter with a different lens and do things in a different way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Godfrey. And before, by the way, before we get too lost, would you share your website with everybody? And I'll also make sure to leave links for all your social media and your website. But what's, what's your campaign website? Sure, you can head to godfreyforassembly.com. Uh, that's Godfrey, G-O-D-F-R-E-Y, for assembly, the word for, not the number four assembly.com and we're on Facebook at Godfrey for Assembly. We're on Twitter and uh, an Instagram under uh, the handles Godfrey Plata, P-L-A-T-A. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. you know, so so let me, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah. Let me touch a little bit on, on some of the things that I've been noticing, right? So first of all, I find it particularly interesting how nobody is calling for the assault or the murder or violence towards um, all the corporate corporations and billionaires that have looted Americans um, for decades at this point, right? So I just find it interesting that there's no repercussion uh, uh, for the thousand people who own this country who have been raping and pillaging, essentially, um, but yet, the president is taking a stance on these protests of he believes in in essentially uh uh i'm sorry i'm like the uh the english is my second language the uh when capital punishment there we go he believes in capital punishment for looters and people who do arson because that's essentially what he's saying he's saying people are starting to steal things and they're setting fires to stuff so we should shoot them and kill them so what you're saying is death penalty that's the phrase that was escaping me earlier what you're saying is you believe in the death penalty for for theft and arson that's what he's saying so so i i just this is absolutely insane um the second thing that i find interesting is the way that the mainstream media has completely corroded and corrupted the story at this point they keep telling us that these looters have taken away or stolen the message of the protesters. No, they haven't. You're doing that. You're doing that by reporting it that way. You're setting the narrative. Mm -hmm. What you should be doing is talking about why the protests are happening, what led to the 92 riots and why we're seeing shades of that today. Okay, that's what we need to be talking about. And no one's saying that we need to condone looting or violence. Of course we don't. But let's not lie to ourselves about why this is happening. How long are you supposed to be able to fuck with somebody without them fucking back? And that's a legitimate question. You know, how long are you supposed to be able to go into people's homes and murder them in their sleep? And, and you know, so a third thing that I found interesting was 
now they're trying to, some people are trying to turn this around like, oh, those people who were so worried about social distancing are now the, are now the ones going out there and protesting. Well, first of all, let's back it up a little bit. Number one, uh, these are the same people who were just out protesting recently with no masks on, whereas almost everyone that I saw around me had a mask on at, at the uh, you know Black Lives Matter protests. But you had protesters uh, uh, recently going out there talking about we need to reopen and we're America and we want freedom and no masks and no nothing and this pandemic is a hoax and you know nothing happened to them nothing happened to them and they were actually putting way more people at risk because they weren't even trying to wear a mask they weren't even trying to social distance mm -hmm. right and so california has been partially reopened we told you guys we think well i mean I'm, i won't speak for you but i personally said based on what i've read from health professionals and scientists it's too soon to reopen so we have no problem with the government pushing us back to work for the stock market because they refuse to give us the resources and the help that we actually need through a UBI, through healthcare, you know, through uh, making sure that not only are, are there rent and mortgage freezes and eviction freezes, but that landlords aren't turning off the lights of their, their residents mm -hmm. to try to force them out, you mm -hmm. know? So I just think it's so interesting where we place our outrage, right? Mm -hmm. And so look, I wasn't the one who decided to reopen California. You guys reopened it. So don't tell me that it can be reopened to stimulate the economy, but then I can't go and protest, which is my right. So it's okay for you to go out and do whatever you wanna do but I can't go protest because social distancing. Wait, what happened? I thought we just reopened and you're going everywhere you want to go, but I can't. So mm -hmm. see, it's a double standard. And I think it's so funny because it's like, look, there's a lot of us that were like, don't reopen. But if you're going to reopen anyway, and you think that we're going to allow you to continue this and we're not going to use our rights, there's something fundamentally wrong there. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Like, it's just, yeah. I don't, I don't see how how they don't see the hypocrisy. Yeah, uh, to touch on a couple of things that you said, I think we're just really dependent on our old ways of being. Um, the Root actually, the, the website The Root um, uh, released um, sort of like a timeline of what led up to uh, this weekend's uprisings or this week's uprisings. But the timeline begins in like 1619, 1620. I think that's really important because you begin to see starting in the 1600s, um, that we, be, we begin to see not just the enslavement of black folks at that time, but we begin to see um, the thinking of people um, toward capital, right? Um, like uh, we begin to see people, um, uh, people serve in order to make other people bigger, in this case, white folks, slave masters. We begin to see white masters murder um, black slaves and then be absolved for that. Right? And so we begin to see the absolution that even we see today because thousands and thousands of police officers continue to be unprosecuted for the murders that they commit on the job or off the job for that matter um, um, in, in this day and age. And then we begin to also see rebellion in the 1600s. Like this isn't a new story. People pushing back to say that we're being treated unfairly, that black folks are being treated unfairly is not a new story. It's been the same story for centuries. And so we see that in the 1600s, and because of that, because they saw the power of rebellion, 
that's when we, as like uh, the United States, pre-United States, the, co the colonists or whatnot, began to formalize police forces. Police forces directly come from maintaining a social order to maintain capital for some and not for others. And today we are living exactly like the very, the, like where centuries of being dependent on that um, have been. We've built a system for that. And that's why our elected officials right now have such a hard time imagining what life could be like without a police force or without holding corporations um, accountable for the money that they've made. It's literally the life we've built and how we've made America. Um, I just, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just want yeah. to touch really quick on that. So yeah. you know how that defund the police thing is going around? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So there are some people trying to use that to say that, oh, liberals, they don't want any rule of law. They just want crime everywhere. They don't believe in the law. They don't believe in rules. No, 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 no. Let's be clear. That's not true. We absolutely believe in laws. We absolutely believe in rules. And we absolutely believe in having a, a, a police system that is fair. When we say defund the police, we're not talking about let's get rid of all the rules and everybody, it's just anarchy. Nobody's saying that, okay? That's just preposterous. What we're talking about is why are we funding the murders of our citizens? Why are we the ones paying every time that these cops get charged and have to go to trial? This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. They should be responsible for their own legal fees. Okay. If you murder somebody, I'm sorry, lawyer up, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just think that that's interesting. And I just wanted to kind yeah. of throw that in there. There's also like a limit of our imagination there. I think um, when we talk about needing structures in our world and needing laws and rules, um, the idea that law, that, that uh, laws and rules can only be enforced through policing is a limit of our imagination. Um, I think a lot of times, I've been a teacher, I've been a seventh grade uh, middle school teacher. What I know about behavior from like early ages into adulthood is that behavior doesn't come out of nowhere. There are like needs that we're responding to, whether or not those needs are visible to the people right in front of you. There's a reason why people act out on perhaps on other people as well. Um, and what we haven't been funding instead, like what we've been funding is police. Here in like LA City, for example, the mayor's new budget, the general fund proposes an increase actually um, for police while cutting down on things like housing or community investment um, or educational enrichment, um, et cetera. Like there are other needs that people actually have. What would happen if we actually just started to reallocate funds to those types of support systems? Can we imagine a world where if someone seems to be yelling in our neighborhood or whatnot, we don't call 911, but we call mental health support? Um, or what happens when like community members are trained to de-escalate as part of being in the same housing complex, right? Like how do we move to a system of community care as opposed to incarceration as our only answer? That's again, yeah. we're limited by the stuff that we've known and the stuff that we've known isn't doing well. Yeah, and I think, but I, I also, yes, I agree. And I also think part of the problem is if we had a, 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 a police system that was actually what it was intended to be, um, I think we'd look at it much more favorably because what the police system was supposed to be was, you know, serve and protect. They were supposed to take care of us, right? 
So I remember there was this, there was this uh, great point that was made where there was this police officer who was saying, you know, my job is to get home safe to my family. No, your job is to make sure I get home safe. Your job is to make sure I get home safe. And so I, I think a huge part of the problem too is that there's much like with the word capitalism and socialism and this and that, there is again, uh, a lack of information and, and, and just a lack of education in our country about what things mean and what certain institutions are supposed to do, right? So we yell socialism without realizing that the police department, the fire department, public parks, like these are all socialist institutions, right? And so it, it, it's just so interesting the way that we look at things and the way that we try to rationalize in our brains uh, what's happening to us. You know, the, the police department was never supposed to be a militarized system that viewed its citizens as a threat that must be eliminated. And that's what, that's what it's at at this point. That's not to say all police officers are like that. Of course not. I've actually seen amazing videos of police officers actually kneeling with protesters, actually marching with protesters. And as soon as I saw that, I said, that's real leadership. That is real leadership because you are not pretending that you don't see what the rest of us are seeing. You are acknowledging the problem and saying, yes, there is a problem. And I, as a, a, a servant of my community, will fight with you. Right, so that's what police stations and police officers should be doing, in my opinion. I have um, one thing that I think um, is hard for people when they think about policing and critiques of policing is, is that we can really easily, um, we can really easily uh, confuse the individual with the institution. Uh, people may have police officers in their families um, uh, or in their networks, they may believe that they are good people because they know more than just what they are like with a badge or with a gun in a uniform, et cetera. Um, but I think it's extremely fair to be able to critique the institution of what policing is, has become, and what it's supposed to do. And, um, and I don't, like, I, 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 I am in a space where I am interested in reimagining what that institution ought to be because again like thinking about the history of policing coming from um, the policing of um, slavery like to serve and protect still leaves room for serve and protect who and I don't want to leave room for that right. I, I want to make sure that serving protect means like we we are all served and and protected and I worry that the institution has been built too much with that hierarchy in mind um, look and right. I think that's a fair point I think we are going to have and look this isn't to say that that we know right this second what the answer is, right? Because mm -hmm. this is going to take a lot of brainstorming. It is going to take a lot of hard work to, to really change things, right? And so, for example, in, in, in the UK, cops don't have guns. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that that's the solution here because we have, we have to admit, in America, we have a completely different culture, right? Um, people love their guns, right? But we need to understand that there is a fundamental problem with the violence that police officers are being taught to inflict, mm -hmm. right? And the best way I can think of it is, you know, if you are so terrified of everything that you got to pull out your gun right away, you shouldn't be a cop. Mm -hmm. Snowflake, you're too, you're too afraid of everything. You want to talk about snowflakes? Oh my God, how triggered are you? 
<laughs> that you literally feel the need to pull your gun at everything because you're scared of everything. This is not the right line of work for you. This line of work would be for someone with a steady temperament, with a lot of compassion and patience, right? But that's not what we get. What we get is a six week academy that they get pushed through and they don't actually get taught how to deal with human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, they get taught to constantly be at guard because someone's gonna attack you and like, you gotta, like people are the enemy. And it's like, so I do think that we are going to uh, have to find a way to reimagine what our police system looks like in the United States, because frankly, um, I don't know if anybody's looked around, but it's been a colossal failure. <laughs> we have failed. Uh, it has not worked the way that we've tried to do it. And so I think we need to be able to acknowledge that because if we don't, it's just gonna keep getting worse. There's no way to, to push past this without acknowledging the severe mistakes that have been made. Mm -hmm. um, so really quick, uh, I, wanna, I wanna just uh, read out a few comments. We do have some live viewers. Oh. So I'm gonna be reading out some, uh, yeah, some comments that we've been getting. And then I wanna actually, you know, delve a little bit more into your campaign. That way we can actually, you know, get to know a little more about that. Um, so Sky is watching us. She said, hey, happy Sunday, K-Town in the house. Thank you, Sky. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, who else? Steve has also been watching us. He said a few things. He said, George Floyd was murdered in the first. Um, I am white and male and therefore privileged, yet my life has sucked financially throughout it all. What that means is that I will fight to get mine, but I will also insist that those who've been in worse conditions get to be in line first. Uh, he also said, yes, Godfrey, criminals are always psychologically unhealthy, replace police in prisons with mental health technicians and mental health asylums, also restorative justice. Mm -hmm. So a lot from Steve there, but, you know, and, and I was actually talking in one of my earlier episodes about how, you know, I've questioned the... I've questioned how much the term white privilege helps us because I feel that it automatically puts someone else on the defensive. And something really awesome that Steve mentioned is that maybe what we should focus on is the minority disadvantage, right? So there's been this, I feel like there's been this effort by the rich and powerful people in this country to look at every single group of people and tell them, hey, all of your problems are caused by this group, whether that be minorities, whether that be immigrants, whether that be, you know, uh, black men, whether that be atheists, like whatever it is, your problems are caused by this group of people. And so we fight amongst ourselves and we never get the opportunity to realize that really this is a social class warfare, right? Mm -hmm. So it goes far beyond uh, just race and, 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 and background. It's to the level where people are just being murdered and white individuals are sometimes hesitant to stand up for black individuals because they think that they're somehow different, but they don't realize those same police officers that are brutalizing black and Latino men in a couple of months when you haven't been able to pay your mortgage, and evictions start because we have been reading and we have been told that there's going to be a huge wave of people losing their homes coming up because of everything that's been happening. If you think those same violent cops aren't going to beat you and drag you out of your house, regardless of your race, you're crazy. You're crazy. There is a violent culture altogether. And so I think that we all need to band together 
and that without going at odds with each other, we do need to realize when we've been in a more privileged situation than other people. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we feel privileged because for a working class white person who's poor, who's a single mother, she doesn't feel any more privileged than anyone else, you know? But what we need to do is, is, is inform people of the underprivilege of minorities, right? Of the fact that if you're a white person, you can drive down the street without having to worry any 20, every 20 seconds about, am I gonna be pulled over and killed? Like that's mm -hmm. not something that white people really have to worry about for the most part right? Not saying that it doesn't happen, but it's rare, right? If you're a black person, especially a black man or, or a Latino man, you're really worrying when you're sitting behind the wheel of that car, because you know, if you get pulled over, that could be the last time that you get pulled over. That could, you could die. So how do you think we bring people together? And, I, and this is kind of leaning into your campaign and what your philosophy is. How would you say that we can bring people together to where we're not automatically putting a group of people on the defensive and instead we're fighting uh, in unison against really the oligarchs that have controlled this country and put us against each other? Mm -hmm. I think it's a really complicated like set of questions in there. Um, I guess let me, let me share a little bit of my campaign, but then let me come back to some of the things that you've shared. Um, so, um, uh, one of the reasons why I'm running is because I believe that regular everyday people ought to be a part of the democracy that we say that we are. My theory right now is that we're not actually living in a real democracy. Um, and we have like a lot of actual like proof of that. In, in my district, again, there's 483,000 people in my district. It is a diverse district, but it's predominantly people of color, um, immigrants, renters in my district. Out of those 483,000 people, um, 375,000 or so are eligible to vote. Now there's a gap in there. It's not just because there are kids who are not of age to vote. It's because we also have a ton of undocumented folks in our area as well, who don't have the same rights to dignity and support in this or, country. Or documented folks, that, are, but they're just permanent residents and not citizens and so they can't vote yet. Sure, yes. And then from that 375,000 um, people who are eligible to vote, uh, 200,000 are actually registered to vote. So there's a gulf there of 175,000 people. Who, um, who are eligible to vote but are not registered. And then of that 200,000 people registered to vote, in the last primary in 2018, the person I'm running against um, sailed into first place in that primary with just 24,000 votes. So like, again, to compare, 24,000 votes um, are, are, are what kept him in first place, let him sail through into the general, there's 483,000 people in the district and we're in the second largest city in the United States of America. This is a failure of the democratic process. Like what we're saying is that the person who gets to represent us in Sacramento amongst 80 other folks making decisions about our lives, like is not actually getting the consent of, what is that, 300, uh, uh, more than 400, 60,000 people, around there, around 460,000 people or so, right? That's ridiculous. Um, and so I come from an organizing background and in my organizing background, my theory of the world revolves around that people, um, people can build collective power together so that we can balance out the powers right now that are exerting themselves disproportionately because they have power of position or power of money. 
These are these corporations that we continue to think about, and these are elected officials or appointed officials. They are incentivized to support each other because if they have the most power right now, corporations, power of money, and then positional power, power of position, they can keep each other in place. So only through organizing and building the civic sector can we actually begin to mount a campaign to begin to be in power and exercise power for ourselves. So part of running for office is like, they're not gonna be incentivized to build an electorate larger than it already is, right? If I know I can sail into my election with just 24,000 high propensity voters, I'm gonna repeat that behavior. And repeating that behavior doesn't grow democracy. It doesn't actually move us closer to representing real people. And so we have to have people running like you, like me, like other folks who never once in their lives thought that they'd be running um, to, be able, uh, to be able to change the types of conversations that are had around this. Most of the people I've met, we, we knocked on 15,000 doors um, in, in the primary. Most of the people that we talked with cannot name for you the fact that they have an assembly person, let alone his name. Um, we're far away from Sacramento. Lots of people can think about city council. Lots of people can think about school board. People know the president, but they skip this whole level of Sacramento legislators. And again, they're not incentivized to come down and go knock on doors um, to tens and thousands of people because they don't need to. They can just press buttons, send mail, and do that. So my campaign is really about engaging with real community members as a community member myself and beginning a conversation that questions who is in power and what democracy is actually supposed to look like. Um, so everything we've done revolves around that and our platform was literally created after the first knock of 1000 doors. We weren't gonna release any sort of platform unless we knew what people were actually talking about and needing for their lives. I love that, I love yeah. that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so here we are, you know, we got 37% of the vote um, in the primary. Um, that's 21,000 people who came out to vote for me. Again, 24,000 voted for him last time in the last primary. So we're, you know, like we are, we are getting in on there. Um, right now it's a pandemic. So our door-to-door -door strategies, our in-person gatherings, they won't work for us in the same way this time around. So we're trying to figure out how do we continue to build this community engagement that we're interested in? Um, because yeah, I actually think that's really interesting because every, I think everyone who's running any type of campaign, whether it be political or any kind, is really going to have to find a new way to reach out to people, right? So, so like my strategy has been, look, I'm not gonna put people at risk by going to their door right now. It's a pandemic, like you said. And we've already been told that there's, most likely going to be a second and stronger wave coming in the fall, you know, so we have to prepare for that. And, and if anybody thinks that's not going to tank the economy, even for, guys, this is, this is for the next year or two. And I don't think anybody's really wanting to accept that. Right. Mm. So we've got to get creative and do online events, do online fundraising and things like that. And I think that after this pandemic is, is done, it's, we're going to see a very different landscape for everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and it's going, it's going to be really hard, um, but you know, um, uh, only people who would be uh, risk averse, is that the right term? Risk of, uh, not risk yeah. averse, uh, but like people who would be willing to take the risk to run for office. Oh, right, right, right. Would also be creative enough to begin to think about um, different ways of connecting um, with community members, et cetera, and educating them on all these different issues and what's happening. Now to go back to your initial question of, um, 
being like, what does inclusion look like, when, especially when you think about different racial demographics um, or just like different types of people in general. I, I do actually think like, because I don't believe that we're currently in a democracy, <laughs> like where, where, that, where I really wanna spend time is actually on issues that have been less likely to be heard. So for me, 483,000 people is almost an impossible number to, to build consensus around them, right? Like there, there is a lot of language about like, what can we come together on? I, I believe in that idea of where can we find intersecting commonalities, common issues. But at some point, we also have to recognize that over time, there have been some groups of people and some issues that have not been underprivileged, but underrepresented. Um, in, in Very true. Right, in spaces of decision making. So as one of those people, I'd be the first queer immigrant ever in our assembly's 140 year history. As one of those people, I very much want to represent voices that aren't currently there. Right now in the assembly, out of the 80 people there, just one is a renter, right? 25% 20 are landlords. And so for me, like, I'm, I'm going to represent homeowners. That's correct. They have, they have like, um, they have uh, opinions about our neighborhood, perspectives about our neighborhood, but know that when I'm up there and if I'm the only renter voice up there, I have to represent renters, but that doesn't mean that there won't be 79 other people there who are representing homeowners, probably a little bit more than renters. It's extremely important for us to represent folks um, who might not actually be represented. That's different from inclusion. That's a little bit like, right? Like it's actually much more con like being critically conscious about what you're representing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let me ask you, what are, I mean, obviously we, we, we don't have time to get into every single detail of your platform and what you think the issues are, but could you tell me, what do you think are like the top two or three biggest issues in your uh, district, number one? And then number two, what are your top two or three biggest uh, uh, policies that are on your platform that you would fight for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, What's really hard about this question is we, you know, we, I, I filed in April uh, of 2019 um, and now it is past a year later, right? And we're in such a different time with the pandemic headed toward the general. We now can also pay attention to the conversation and the assembly happening right now and figure out where is the conversation of the people who I would call my colleagues if I were entering the legislature right now. So I can share for you sort of like, I'll mix it up a little bit. There's like, what, I think there's a number one issue that has been true for both years, um, both 2019 when we first started this, but it's still really important now. And then, and then I, do, I do wanna respond to um, sort of what I think is a little bit different as a result of, of the pandemic right now. Again, it's new and we need to do more thinking there and we need to watch where our legislators are talking there. Um, in 2019, when we walked door to door, the number one issue was rent. We can throw around all of the policy wonky language, affordable housing, housing justice. Regular people don't use those words. They talk about their rent, especially in a predominantly renter district. And so if tenants, um, and, and, and the LA Tenants Union here in LA, they actually describe tenants as folks who are incarcerated, folks who are renting, and folks who are unhoused. Uh, three groups of people that are not in charge of of their conditions, right? Like of, of their housing conditions. Um, uh, renters make up like the, the biggest number of people that we've talked to, but in my district, which includes downtown LA and Skid Row, you have to include for sure incarcerated folks and house folks in this definition of tenants. Tenant rights are the number one thing 
that we need to be pushing for. Um, because the price of rent and the rising price of rent and the escalating evictions as a result of rising costs of rent, especially after this pandemic, like that is what is leading to the increase in our unhoused population. And the fact that the federal minimum wage hasn't gone up in 10 years, but inflation hasn't stopped. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And like a lot of people will tether those two things together, right? Like workers' rights, wage, wages, anti-wage theft, labor rights, etc., is like completely tethered to being able to pay for housing and rent. But this is only because we live in a world in which we're commodifying housing, right? Like, it looked like you were about to. <laughs> yeah, much, much like we're commodifying healthcare. That's right. That's right. And, and a as, prison system. That's right. It's all for profit. And and when we commodify housing or commodify healthcare, what we're saying is that there are people who do not deserve healthcare or housing. And I think that is a violation of our fundamental human rights. That, that like, we cannot actually say that we stand, um, we, we stand for human rights and say, but you can only get it if you can afford it. That's like, that's ridiculous. Um, and so- um, Yeah, kind of like trying to sell people health insurance when they're jobless in the middle of a pandemic. Uh -huh, exactly. Yes, <laughs> that, that's exactly right. What, what part of broke do you not get? Mm -hmm. Are you stupid? Anyway. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but again, like we're dependent on a system that has, um, that has only been able to provide its services if we can provide the payment for it because we need, because the capitalism we've chosen to live under um, uh, requires that we be paid for our work in that same way. Um, and so like clearly there are lots of root causes here, but you were asking about specific policies um, related to that particular issue. So I am in interested in a tenant's right to counsel, right? If I were um, arrested on the street, I would have access to a public defender should I, should I need one. The public defense system is not um, perfect by any means. Like the, the loads that our public defenders have to serve is enormous. They are under incredible stress as well to try to cover all of their different clients. Um, and try to defend them adequately. Um, but like tenants don't have that luxury of, of being told, here's your lawyer who can tell you whether or not you actually have been um, exploited here, right? Like you only really have access to knowing what you know <laughs> and what you can get access to. But when you think about who lives in Los Angeles and the amount of access people might have to technology, to things that are within their language, et cetera, you absolutely need the support of someone with legal um, expertise to be able to navigate a possible eviction in court. Um, and so that is like definitely- I think that's wonderful. I, I actually, to be honest with you, um, and I'm sure there have been other candidates who've spoken about this, but you're the first one that I've heard talk about this. And I think that's a fantastic idea. Mm -hmm. and, and we can, uh, people are, you know, one of, one of the things that people forget about having a state legislator is there are so many, um, great activists and organizers working on the ground at a city and county level to push for all of these different types of policies for their city or county. But we could also override that and say, actually, for the state, this is going to be true. Let's like save the energy of activists and organizers for having to put band-aids city by city by city by city and actually make change happening uh, happen on a, on, a, on a state level. So that's, that's a little taste of that first issue. Um, I do think that I'm um, very interested in, um, I'm very interested in where this particular moment um, that we're in right now with the uprisings we talked about earlier, what that will mean 
for police accountability, um, for mental health funding, um, for um, defunding some of the corrections and thinking about alternatives to incarceration. Um, I'm, I'm really interested uh, to begin moving in that direction as well. Um, I think you can only be a true representative if you're representing the pulse of where your people are at and the pulse of the people we're at right now. It's on the news, like it's clear. It's like the number one thing on people's minds right now. Like, can we even leave our homes in the next half hour because or 10 minutes because we're gonna be on curfew, right? And we're on curfew because we insist on maintaining a system that's going to exert violence upon black folks. So there's a, pro there's a problem there um, that's impacting everyone, not just black folks at the same time. Yeah, no, well said, well said. Um, and, and, and of course, to just to let people know, you're obviously, you're a progressive candidate and you do support policies like Medicare for all, like a <laughs> yes. deal, like all the basics guys. So just yes. so you know, I know we didn't really go into those uh, because they're kind of uh, given, but just to let you know, he is a progressive candidate and he does support all of these progressive uh, policies. So uh, the last thing I really wanted to ask you about was your work with Our Revolution Los Angeles. Uh, so as you guys know, I am the events director for Our Revolution Los Angeles. Uh, and I love, love, love working with them because we're doing some amazing things uh, as well as, you know, working with Movement for a People's Party to form a new party because we don't feel that we're represented anymore, you know? So tell me a little bit about how you first um, got involved with Our Revolution Los Angeles. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, I think most people who would identify themselves as progressives um, over the last uh, half decade or more have heard of someone named Bernie Sanders. Um, and um, who, is that? who are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. He's from over there, like across the country. Yeah, some dude had a bird over land there. on him or something, right? Like <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Clearly, it's been really exciting to, um, to see and be part of a movement um, that has been inspired by saying the thing we've always wanted people running for office to say because they reflect the truths of our lives and what we demand for our communities. Um, and I'm talking about uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, but also like all of the other people who he's been able to cultivate and identify and stand alongside who are championing things like Medicare for all, for example, housing for all. Um, and, um, you know, that inspires you to find like-minded people. Um, and as a, as a candidate who is running, um, uh, is running as a Democrat, but it has like not really been active in the Democratic Party. I've not been in line for any sort of elected seats. You know, I'm not, I'm not a kissing rings type of person. I've been organizing on the ground with educators, students, and families. Um, like kind of so, like how democracy should work? Right, exactly. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> the way that like the party system runs is that it is like the, the party system is an institution that provides strength behind candidates. And as an outsider, progressive candidate, it can be really hard to influence a Democratic Party because when they're thinking about maintaining their strength, even in a state as liberal as California, they are ultimately concerned with, um, with maintaining their strength. They're going to limit their platforms or the people they support to people who can be in line. And I'm not someone who can get in line. Like I, I believe in representing um, who is out here at the 15,000 doors we knocked at, et cetera. So that's who I am going to represent. Um, and, you know, th that means, though, that because I am institutionless, because the Democratic Party is an institution that can back um, other candidates, 
with lots of money, with lots of connections, lots of support, lots of people, progressive candidates like you and me have to create other um, relationships with institutions that can provide that backing. And our revolution is, is one of the groups that can provide that backing for stuff, uh, for people like us to be able to build power um, alongside so many others in our community who want to demand more from even the Democratic Party. Um, and so, you know, I found our revolution because I knew that I needed to find like-minded aligned people um, like that who would stand for the same sort of policy proposals that I stand for, but also believe that we need to build. Um, and I know that there are many institutions like that, but I, you can feel it as a candidate. You can, you can feel when it would be helpful to have already set crew of folks to, to get on it, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. and I, I've had to build that on my own. And it is my hope that our revolution nationally um, and locally can be an institution like that. Yeah, and I think, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but one of the things that I find most concerning is when people say, I'm a Dem party loyalist. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, that just alarm bells in my head because what that means is you're loyal to a party, not the people, mm -hmm. or loyal to a party, but not the policies, mm -hmm. right? So uh, when someone says to me, I'm a, I'm a GOP loyalist or a Dem party loyalist, right away, I, I call into question, um, you know, that person right away I call them into question because that tells me so much about you and what your priorities are. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? And, 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 you know, so, so I just think that it's, it's wonderful that we have candidates like you that aren't interested in, you know, shaking hands and, you know, making friends. What you're actually interested in is taking our country back to actually represent working class people mm -hmm. instead of, you know, billionaires. Um, so uh, really quick, uh, Steve made another comment. He said, end the plutocracy, true justice cannot be bought. Uh, I think that's so true. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of in a climate where, and I, and I was telling, you know, some of my supporters this, uh, and we all kind of feel like we're at a tipping point. We're at a boiling point. The next 10 years, I think, are going to be incredibly transformative in this country and for so. the better. <laughs> we need them to be. No, well, they will be, but that does not mean it's going to be easy. So we are going to see a lot of disturbing things, oh, I believe, over the next decade. And, it, and, and we're also going to see a lot of change. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be that faction of people who hate change, who don't want it, and who just want everything to be 1910s, like you're my property, everybody listens to me, you know, nobody disagrees with me on anything and this is my country, uh, you know, which is preposterous. Change is inevitable. So you either catch up or you get left behind. So we have to be on board with progress mm -hmm. because when we're not on board with progress, that's when we start slipping on our education. That's when we start slipping on our technology. That's when we start slipping on space exploration. Legitimate space exploration, not Steve Carell's Space Force. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, although I am so looking forward to seeing that. Uh, I think it's hilarious, hilarious that we're literally having a comedy TV show about the president's space. I mean, come on. I actually saw the first episode yesterday. I, I need the news so I did watch the first um the first two and a half episodes or something 
and um, they have, I didn't know this, they had a, they have an AOC character. Her initials are literally <laughs> AOC, and she's that young congresswoman is like how she's characterized as, but like they, they, like they have her do like her hearing questioning, um, you know, like, it, like they have the pop of color um, lipstick um, and everything. So it's, it's so, it's so wild that we are living in a moment where a, where like a series can ha has actually already picked up on characters on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's uh -huh. crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's pretty much my thoughts on it. So um, before we go, I'm going to give you the floor. Uh, is there anything that else that you want to say or that you want to share with our viewers? Um, you know, just thank you. Thank you for giving me the space um, today to, to live stream with you. Um, I think now is a time where dialogue, to your, to your point earlier, dialogue is actually extremely important. Um, there, there are things we can do if we create just big enough of a community to get just enough votes, to get just enough movement behind something, to get just enough um, moving forward. But at the end of the day, like we also have to be okay with the fact that dialogue does fit in there somewhere. Um, and dialogue is going to surface discomforts and differences. Um, in how we view the world, what will work for us. Um, but in, unless we're willing to have that kind of a dialogue on a Sunday afternoon, even when it's hard because there's so much going on in the world, um, I think we're not gonna be able to move forward as far or more than just enough than, than we wanna go. So I appreciate your willingness to, to have that dialogue today. Um, and again, for folks who wanna find out more about our campaign, godfreeforassembly.com. Um, we are volunteer-led, completely grassroots, that means we're not taking corporate money and that means your donations are important because I will only take donations from regular real people like you and myself. Um, and that's going to be really hard because again, there's institutional money out there backing establishment candidates. And if you wanna see progressives actually get into spaces where they can influence um, decisions and represent your voices, you have to be able to not just show up, but contribute. Um, in those ways as you can as well. So thank you all for your support in advance, uh, but thank you for your time today and for the conversation. Yeah, no worries. I'm, I was so happy to have you on and I actually hope that you can, uh, you know, come on in the future and, you know, hopefully when you win and you can, you can tell us all about your win. And then I'd also love to have you on at any point, just talk about, you know, other topics, but I, and I also want to take this uh, opportunity to officially give you my endorsement. I think you're an amazing candidate. Oh, <laughs> It's so important. It's so important that we support progressive candidates at every single level. Um, so, you know, I, I want to make sure that people follow you. Uh, I will be at, once this video is done processing, uh, I'll go ahead, if you want to send me, Godfrey, uh, all your social media links and stuff, I'll go ahead and post his website, his social media for you guys. Uh, thank you so, so much for joining us today, Godfrey. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're an important voice for everything we have going on. Um, so for you guys, thank you so much for watching. We will be back next Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. As always, we always have a different guest uh, and we have all kinds of different topics that we talk about that are pretty fun. So let me get for you guys. Who do we have next week? Who do we have next week? Let me see here. I probably should have had this open. I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... Next week, guys, I don't have a list in front of me. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet later. Oh, someone good is going to be on next week. 
<laughs> yeah, surprise mystery guest next week. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and tweet later. We've got next week. I don't have the list in front of me right now, but we have another great episode next week. I look forward to seeing you guys. As always, please subscribe if you haven't. You can find me on Twitter at Annalise, Instagram, Annalise Vincent. We'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, guys. Thanks, Godfrey. Bye. Bye. Bye.